Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Boat on the Beach by Cardra Macy The lifeguards watched her every night come down the boardwalk from the beach hotel, cross the dunes obliquely, and go to sit in the boat. They talked about her, idly but speculatively, as lonely men talk about the smallest thing which crosses their horizon, and they agreed that she wasn't bad-looking. She was a slim woman, probably somewhere in the thirties, a slim woman dressed all in white, with a lot of wavy blue-black hair. They noticed that her hair was unusually beautiful and most unusually abundant. They noticed that she had narrow feet in the low-heeled, one-strap white kid pumps and slender ankles above them. They noticed that she wore no colour on her clothes, her cheeks, or lips. One day she turned and looked directly up, when the boy in the observation room had the glass trained upon her. The boy fell back a step and said, "'Good God!' When the others asked him what the matter was, he said, "'I saw her eyes.' They asked him what colour her eyes were, and what was the trouble with them. He said, "'They're big, and I think they're black as her hair, but they look—they look—well, they look like you'd expect the eyes of somebody nailed on a cross to look.' She did not look up again. But every evening, before dark, she came down and crossed the dunes and sat in the lifeguard's boat for several hours, and the lifeguards talked about her, idly, when they were not discussing the far more important topic of the latest maritime disaster. For this was just three weeks after the passenger steamer Astarte had sprung a leak and foundered, in foul weather, just a few hundred miles off the coast. For some reason— which the surviving members of her crew could not satisfactorily explain. Her SOS had not been sent out, in what her surviving passengers and the public considered time enough to bring her aid. More than fifty percent of those on board had perished, either in the launching of the lifeboats, or in the stormy, bitter cold of the days before that pitiful flotilla was picked up by the rescue ships. Shipping boards and owners, passengers and reading public, investigated, questioned, promised explanations, threatened suits, and wrote to the papers. And when they were through, nobody knew any more than they had known at first. For the only man who had that secret locked under the breast of his blue uniform had done his best, whether right or wrong, and had gone down on the bridge of his ship. It was a far more important topic than idle discussion of a slim woman in white who sat alone in a boat on the beach from sunset until the three-quarter moon had passed high overhead toward the west. The lifeguards were discussing it gravely, humbly, understandingly, as beseemed men who know that the sea has crises too great for any man to meet. The boarders at the beach hotel— most of whom had never taken a longer sea voyage than that afforded by the six-mile ferry from the mainland to the island, were discussing it shrilly, assertively, not hesitating to censure and to state what should or should not have been done. But everybody was discussing it, even the eight-year-old small boy who came every day from the nearest cottage to inspect the lifeguard station 
to mount the lookout ladders, to climb into the boats, to help the sunburned men in white wash, paint, scrub brass, and oil the heavy two-wheel carriages so that they might be, momentarily, ready to be launched upon their runway to the sea. The small boy knew that a boat had sunk, a big boat full of men and women and little boys and girls. His daddy had said they were drowned because the captain had not sent a wireless off in time, but the oldest lifeguard, the little one with the bow legs and the grizzled hair that stood up straight, had said, Sonny, all a man can do is do his best. The small boy understood, too, and privately he agreed with the lifeguard, rather than with his daddy. He was in the third grade, would be when school opened again, and he practised writing on the beach, Astarte. One morning, while he was laboriously tracing it, the lady in the sleeveless white silk dress came up behind him. She said, You too? And, not understanding but liking her voice, he looked up and smiled at her with his wide, governor's gates of missing teeth. She said, Will you come down to the drugstore and eat an ice cream cone with me? At the counter, she said, What do you want? He chose a strawberry one and asked politely, What do you want? She looked at him with her wide black eyes, and the soda joker heard her say, A little boy like you, for a sea anchor. But she ordered another strawberry cone, and then, for some reason, did not eat it, and asked him if he would be kind enough to eat it for her. That evening she came down, as usual, along the walk across the sand hills. Looking up over the dunes from the boat, she saw the sea-oats etched in golden grain and sheaf against the sky. Sunset, out on the back beaches, had set the marsh aflame. Up to the zenith its wastrel opals spattered the western clouds. East, the giant copper disk of the moon came out of the sea. She sat there so long, so long, with her arms clasped around her knees. The wind was whipping her thin white dress and loosening strands of her long black hair, but her body did not move. To the lifeguard up in the observation tower, she looked a woman carved in stone. She saw the moon go higher and cut in the sea's green jungle a silver road. It stretched from the climbing planet straight to the boat on the beach. Her brain was grasping at scattered thoughts as a drowning person grasps drifting straws. She was half remembering queer old lines, things that nobody reads nowadays. Who wrote, wished that the ebbing tide would bear me away on its bosom to the ocean far and wide? The lifeguard up in his conning place remembered that next night would be the full moon and the flood tide. He looked again to see that the boat on its heavy carriage, was well above the high tide mark. It was well above it, there in the moonlight, with that lonely figure sitting in the stern. The small boy, lying on his stomach on a sand dune just a hundred yards away, was watching too. He had seen the red moon rise, and throw that path across the sea to the boat. Being a child and nearer to God, his vision was clearer than theirs. 
He saw what the lifeguard did not see, what the slim woman in the boat did not see, although she looked for it with eyes which bore witness to her crucifixion every night. He had been watching every night, the small boy on the dune. It had happened every night, and it was happening again. But the woman in the boat sat, marble still. The wind moved only her dress and her hair. She seemed to think that she was alone at the end of that long, moon-sequent path. Flood-tide foamed on the beach next night, brimmed the gutters and shallow pools, washed the sides of the outpost dunes into new, concave, wave-carved shapes. Just before sunrise, the lookout saw that the boat on the beach was gone. The man who had had night watch reported having seen it shortly before midnight. Tide had turned three hours before that time, and it was then well above the water. Anyway, it was an eight-man boat, and it took two husky ones to launch it. Yes, he was sure he had seen it at 11.50 p.m. He was absolutely sure, for the woman in white had been sitting in it then. The two lifeguards who went down to investigate found the heavy carriage with its two broad tired wheels, its chassis, pole, and ropes well out in the surf of the now incoming tide. That in itself proved that someone had taken the boat. Had the flood tide, coming higher than usual, washed it out, it would have taken the boat alone, and not the carriage with its sand-embedded wheels. Some persons, for the strongest lifeguard, could not alone roll that carriage down the shingle, had rolled it out into the surf deep enough to launch it. With one man hauling on its rope and one pushing on the pole, they got it back to its place high on the beach. Starting up the boardwalk, they met a group of men from the hotel. The manager himself was one of them, and he was speaker. "'We've just been to the station to report a woman missing. One of the ladies didn't come in last night. Can you help us? What did she look like? We'll send a man out on the beach and send a boat out, too, right away.' She was a slim woman, with a lot of dark hair, and she was dressed all in white. "'That's the woman who sits in the boat,' said the grizzled lifeguard. And the younger one added, "'She was in it last night.' Sawyer said he saw her there just before midnight. "'What boat? Where's the boat?' demanded the manager. "'The station boat that sits on its carriage just across the dunes. She's been coming down and sitting in it for hours every night. Where is it now? We'd like you to tell us that. Somebody rolled the carriage down the beach and launched it sometime between midnight and daybreak.' And you say a slim woman, a woman in white, was sitting in it last night? Sawyer saw her in it at eleven-fifty. But great God, said the manager, that was Mrs. Card. What Mrs. Card? You don't mean— Yes, I do mean, said the manager. That was the Mrs. Card. Wife, I should say widow, of Captain Card of the steamship Astarte. I hadn't heard she was here, one of the Coast Guards said. She registered under a different name, answered the manager. She wanted to be quiet, and that was the only way. But she told me who she was and why she was doing it. Do you think we'll find her on the island? 
or do you think? Nobody said what he thought, but they all were thinking hard. Not one of them failed to wonder whether the theft of a seaworthy boat by parties unknown, and the suicide of a woman beside herself with grief, might not be unrelated incidents occurring only by coincidence on the same night. Within thirty minutes, there were half a dozen volunteer boats, as well as the station boats, out past the breakers, and posses were patrolling the beach and every foot of the island. But midday came without a trace of lost woman or lost lifeboat. The eldest guard was in the lookout room when the little boy climbed the ladder. He usually came earlier, but he had been following the search. The station was quiet, for all the men except the lookout and the wireless operator were engaged in that search. He climbed the ladder, the little boy did, and stuck a towhead in a cap much too large for it into the door of the lookout room. And the grizzled lookout dropped the glasses in his hand and stared as if he saw a ghost. God Almighty, where'd you get it? Where'd you get that cap, buddy? The little boy took it off and proudly held it out to him. Then the man set it on one gnarled fist and turned it slowly, unbelievingly, around with the other hand. It was the regulation blue and white cap of a passenger steamship's officer. Its gold braid and insignia told those who knew the sea that it was a master's cap, and the lettering above its visor told anyone who read that it was property of the S.S. Astarte. The lifeguard was still turning it slowly, unbelievingly. Where'd you get it, buddy? On the beach, where the man dropped it while he was shoving the boat last night. What man, buddy? The man who came and took the boat and the lady away with him. The same man who used to come and sit every night in your boat with her. Landsmen have always called sailormen a superstitious folk. This is as it should be. For superstition, like everything else, lends itself to the individual interpretation. And those who go down to the sea in ships know well enough that there occur phenomena which are outside landsman's experience. So the old lifeguard turned the cap in his rope-gnarled, salt-scarred fingers. Tell me about it, buddy. Sure you didn't dream it? No, sir. I was wide awake, sitting out on the sandhill there. Nights that mother and daddy go to the hotel dances, I stay out until the music stops, then run back home before they get there. Tell me what you saw. You say you've seen him before? Oh, yes, he's come every night since the lady came. I don't know which side he comes from. I never see him until he's on the beach at the edge of the waves, right where the end of the road of moonlight is. He goes and sits in the boat with her, but she never seemed to see him before. Perhaps she saw him last night because the moon was so bright and big. She saw him? Yes, she saw him. She held out her arms to him, and he came across the beach and put his arms around her. I watched him launch the boat and, when it was afloat, jump in it with her. I thought he had a right to do it, because he was dressed like an officer. He was dressed like an officer? Yes, like the captain of the ferry that brought us over here. He had a blue uniform with gold braid on his cuffs, and he had this cap. He dropped it on the beach. Can I keep it? 
the telephone bell. It was the hotel manager, asking whether there was yet any news of boat or woman. No, not yet, said the grizzled guard, and after he shut the telephone, he handed the blue cap back to the little boy. Yes, you can keep it, buddy, he said, because there won't be any news.'